Good morning, sweet family from the Father. Welcome you. <laughs> Isn't it great to sing praises to the wonderful Father? Amen. I have the distinction of reading the word this morning. It is from Matthew six nineteen through 34. And it says, <clears throat> this is Jesus' words to us. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermins do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. Your eyes are, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Can you take the papers? Can you take the papers? Well, good morning, everyone. You guys are awake. It's wonderful. Well, I want to take just a moment before we dive into the meat of the sermon uh, to talk just for a second about the Supreme Court decision on abortion. I think it's important for us to talk about that for just a moment. I know some of us may be a little worried about what I may be about to say, but don't worry. I just want to give us some encouragement, some direction, um, and ultimately just talk for a moment. Is that okay? Okay, okay. So for 2,000 years, Christians have stood against the practices of infanticide and abortion. So it's right for us to celebrate what has happened in our country. It's right for us to celebrate the decision that was made by the Supreme Court. That's a, a thing that we should rejoice in. 
But I do want to also give us just kind of a word of encouragement and caution as we move forward from this moment. Because we have become people that have centered around uh, this issue for a long time. And so it's important for us to figure out how we're going to move forward from this moment. And I've already seen people on both sides, whether uh, we're talking about the left or the right, saying that the next election is now the most important election in the history of our country. And I'm not here to tell us whether that is true or not. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not my goal this morning. Instead, I want to gently remind us of the Great Commission. I want to gently remind us of our task that's at hand in the world, and that's to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. This remains our greatest and most pressing task as Christians in the world around us. This is the core of who we are as Christians, as the body of Christ. For the first 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians lived within a Roman world that practiced infanticide. And what that meant in the Roman world is that children would literally be abandoned to the slums and garbage heaps and dung piles. Children would be thrown over cliffs to die. And what the Christians did in those first 300 years is they didn't, they didn't stand up and beat their chest and say, we got it right, you got it wrong. What the Christians did in those first 300 years is they took the kids in. They rescued them from the slums. They picked them up out of the dung heaps. They, they stood at the bottom of the cliffs catching the children and they raised them as their own. And it took 300 years for things to change, but things did change. Over time, the selfless, sacrificial love transformed the Roman world. And the same thing can be true today. The same thing can be true in our world. Because here's the bottom line that I want us to get this morning. A change of law does not equal a change of heart. Change of law can never change hearts. Yes, we want to advocate for the laws of our country to reflect the laws of God. We want to do that. But we must recognize that there is something greater that we must do. We must stand in the gap and live out the gospel. We must be people that show the world what it means to follow after Jesus, to trust in him, to love radically, to show grace radically. That is what transforms hearts. That's what transforms minds. I wanted to remind us that abortion is not just an issue that's outside of the church. If we look statistically about those who get abortions, 40% of women who have an abortion say that they're regular church attenders. Four out of ten say they're regular church attenders. And that tells us something very important about who we are as a church or who we're perceived to be as the church. It means that our churches don't feel like places of grace. It means they don't feel like places of support and love, but rather places where secrecy has to abound where condemnation and judgment are going to be there. And that cannot be the case. We can't have that reputation as a church. We have to be known as people of love, people who have been redeemed, people who have radically experienced the grace of God. And so moving forward, we, we start the fight. 
This isn't the end. We start the fight now. We must become people who show support, who show love, who show grace to those who don't fit our image of what the perfect family looks like. we got to stand in the cap. And when I say show support, love, and grace, I don't just mean by words of affirmation. Though those things are important, when I say support, love, and grace, I mean doing the practical things. Buying diapers, buying food, inviting people into our homes, both temporarily and maybe even permanently. Being people where adoption and foster care are at the forefront of our minds and not an afterthought. Let's be people who are people of grace. People who are all together loving. People who are all together kind. Let's not be people that beat our breasts and say, you're wrong, I'm right. Let's be people who embody the gospel in a world that desperately needs the gospel. This is what will change our world. Amen? I want to pray for just a moment about this and then we'll dive in. Father, we rejoice for the countless lives that will be saved. God, but we also mourn that the church is not seen as a place of grace and a place of love and a place of support. God, I pray that you would help us to practically live out the gospel message. To be people who, who so exemplify your love that invites the world to change their ways. That we ask for you to empower us, for us to become people of love, people of your joy, people of kindness. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into our sermon text today. Uh, we've been in a series called Life According to Jesus over the last several weeks, and throughout this series, we've been talking about, well, life according to Jesus. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and my hope with this series has been to show us that the true life that Jesus would have us to live is altogether different than the life that we typically live. We live in a way that is different than the life that Jesus would have us live. We can look around in our world and we can see that our world is a place of anxiety. Our world is a place of worry. Our world is a place of outrage even. This is the way that our, our world is. But as Christians, we've been called to do life differently. It's, no, uh, it, it's really easy to look at our phones, to be overwhelmed with the constant barrage of a 24-7 news cycle, every single social media thing that happens that we know we're supposed to be outraged about, or the inordinate amount of advertising that we get on a daily basis. We're constantly barraged by these things in life that we're either supposed to be outraged by, that we're supposed to worry about, that we're supposed to care about, that we're supposed to buy or, or do in order to have life according to the standard of the world. And as Christians, we haven't done a great job at resisting this life. We've largely bought into this life just like the world has. Though we may focus on things differently from time to time, largely we've adopted a similar mindset. And this is something that needs to change in order for us to experience life the way that Jesus would have us to live life. 
I want to read this quote from one pastor that I came across this week. He, he says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. For, for those of us sitting in the room, the great danger isn't that we're going to renounce our faith for the most part. He, he goes on to say it's that we will become so distracted, so rushed, and so preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of our faith. And I think we can look at our lives and the lives of others and the lives of our world and we can say, yeah, that's probably true. We've settled for a life that's a little bit different than the life that Jesus has presented for us. We don't have to be people that are always overcome with worry about the state of the world or about our retirement accounts or, or keeping up with appearances. That's not who we have to be as people. Jesus presents us with a way of life that's different, and it's a good type of different, but in order to accept it, it requires a full overhaul of how we think. It's like getting a new operating system is what we need in order to live this life that Jesus would have us live. Following Jesus is an invitation to a journey, an invitation to a journey where we relearn day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, what it means to live the good life. Not the life the way the world would have us live or the life the way that we think we should live, but life according to the way of Jesus. It's a life where worry, where fear, where comparison and endless striving are met with the good news of the gospel with the person of Jesus, where he tells us that there is peace, that there is hope, that there is assurance in him. It's a life that's altogether different, and that's what we're exploring in our passages today. So let's go ahead and dive in. I want to reread verses 19 through 24 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermins do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I know all of you are really nervous right now. We're talking about money, and so this is a place that's uncomfortable for us. We don't like to talk about that in church, but I think it's good for us to be a little uncomfortable. It's good for us to, to feel a little bit of friction as we approach this passage, because you're like, oh no, what's he going to say today? Well, I'm not going to tell you anything different than what Jesus is telling you, but this friction, this place of difficulty is a good thing in our lives because the place of friction is the place of growth. When we feel something like rubbing against itself in our lives, it's Jesus inviting us to live life according to his way. And so I want us to, to take a step back for just a moment and ask the question, why is Jesus so concerned with my money in the first place? 
Like, have you read through the, the New Testament, through Jesus' parables? What you'll find is one out of every three of Jesus' parables is about money. One out of every three of Jesus' parables is about money. And that can, be, that can leave us wondering why. Why is Jesus talking so much about money? Well, I think Jesus understands that our relationship with money is a looking glass into how our souls have been formed. How we relate to money is a looking glass into how our souls have been formed. And he tells us this much when we get to verse 21, where he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's telling us that, that what we treasure, what we value, the things that we're living for, that's ultimately where our heart is. It's not in what we proclaim. It's about who we are in our innermost being, because that's what is the overflow into our lives. And so I want to ask us the question, this is rhetorical, I don't expect you to, to call it out this morning, but I want you to reflect on this today and throughout the week. Where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? And I don't want you to give me the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is where my treasure is. Well, that's obviously where our treasure should be, is in Jesus, but I think if we really think about it, if we really examine our lives, then we may have to admit that our lives aren't truly treasuring Jesus. They were ultimately living for something else. We ultimately build our lives around what we treasure. Listen to this from John Mark Comer. He says, what you give your attention to is the person you become. And this next sentence is one that's that's so, it's been speaking to me a lot as I've even prepared this sermon. He says this, put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul. And what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. What you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. And this is what Jesus is ultimately showing us in verses 22 through 23. As Christians, we should want the trajectory of our character to be leading us to look more and more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ or to what theologians would have us call Christoformity, where we're conformed to the image of Christ. That should be our goal as Christians. But in order to get there, we have to refocus, we have to reorient, we need a new way of life. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing this of some examples of how I could explain this a little bit better. And I was reminded back, I can't remember if it's a high school math teacher or my computer science professor in college, or maybe it was both of them, but they would often say garbage in, garbage out. In other words, bad inputs lead to bad outputs. What goes in will come out. The good as it comes in will go out. The bad as it comes in will go out. And so as Christians, we must be really careful about what we're dwelling on, what we're treasuring, what our focus is on, what our attention is given to, because that is what forms our soul. And since we're talking about money, I'll just say it. Money is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. And the love of money left unchecked will lead our souls to be malformed. It's as simple as that. The more and more we chase after wealth and money, the more and more our souls don't look like Jesus, but look like something else altogether. I want to direct us to 1 Timothy chapter 6 
And we'll read verses 17 through 19. This is Paul writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, instructions for the church. He says this, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's writing to Timothy about what he should teach others about money. He's writing to the average church folks like you and me about how we should interact with money. And just so we're clear, when, when Paul is saying those who are rich in the present age, as Americans, he's talking to 99.99999% of us. Like all of us in this room, that's who Paul is talking about here. We are so blessed, so rich beyond comparison with the world around us. So I want to share the clear teaching on money that Paul just laid out here for us. Money is uncertain. And any of us this year can say amen to that. We, we know that to be true. But there's a second part of that. It's not just that money is uncertain. It's so don't be arrogant. Thanks, Paul. That's a good encouragement you got there. Don't be arrogant or place your hope in money. Place your hope in God instead. I think this is one of those teachings that's really simple, but isn't really that easy to implement into our lives. It's simple because it's not a profound where you're like, oh, I never thought of that before. It's something that on the surface makes sense, but it isn't always easy to implement into our lives. But I will say that it is worth it to implement it into our lives. I want you to listen to the promise that, that Paul shares in verse 19. He says, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The life that is truly life. That's what I want to live. I don't want to live a life that isn't truly life. I want to live a life that is truly life. And so when I say the good life, that's the life that I'm talking about. Because God has designed us to live a certain kind of life. And every other kind of life is unfulfilling. Every other kind of life. A life focused on money. A life focused on, on power or fame or, or politics or, or fill in the blank with anything else. A life focused on that thing is not a life that is truly life. A life that is truly life is found in Christ alone. So as Christians, we must be people who pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. People who pursue the life that Jesus would have us to live. And Paul ex ex expounds upon that back in verse 18. So we looked at verse 19. Let's back up to verse 18. He lays this out of what the true life looks like. To do good. To be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. That's the life that is truly life. This is what it looks like to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. To be people who delight in living according to the way of Jesus, who share the gospel and love our neighbors, and who are selfless with our money. 
That's how we take hold of this life. And this is what the early church did incredibly well. I encourage you to go to Acts 2 this week and look at the birth of the church. See what they did on day one. Spend some time reading that this week. As you do that, I want you to ponder the question, what do you think would happen if we did the same? What would happen to our community and our world if we lived life like the true life? like the good life that Jesus and the biblical authors outline for us. I think what would happen is that we would see another great awakening. And that's what we should contend for, for something that's altogether different. But I think the only way we get there is if we truly know our identity. So I want to go back to Matthew 6 and look at verses 25 through 27. Jesus continues and says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Here Jesus is continuing his discourse on money. He's showing us what it looks like to truly trust in God. I love how he begins, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. That's such a different thought because we are people that worry about our lives. Amen? Okay, you guys are, you, you were awake in the beginning and now we, we went to sleep somewhere. I'm going to have to start throwing things. I'm just kidding. We worry about things in our life, but Jesus invites us to not worry about things in our life. I'm like, oh, that sounds really good, Jesus. I would really like this life where I don't have to worry. It takes an invitation to trust Jesus, to do life differently, because Jesus is the one who knows all things. He knows all things, and yet he tells us not to worry. But it's not in like a Bob Marley, don't worry, be happy, smoke a little marijuana, and forget about reality kind of way. That's not the type of not worrying that Jesus would have for us. He's telling us not to worry because we've grabbed hold of something that is truly life. Something that is all together different, where we trust God wholly, and he transforms us from our innermost being. This is something that the early church saw happen. I want to just reflect on Acts 7. In Acts 7, Stephen has been sharing the good news about Jesus, and he's facing uh, the Sanhedrin who are are about to stone him to death. And Stephen, in this moment, looks to heaven and says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what it looks like not to worry. To not worry about your life. To have such trust in God, to know Him so intimately, knowing that your life is about to come to an end in a gruesome way, and saying, look, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. See, knowing who God is and what He thinks about us changes everything. 
When we know who God is and what He thinks about us, we're able to truly not worry about our lives. And Jesus ultimately, as He's expounding upon this, when He's telling the crowd not to worry, He uses an illustration. He points us outside to look at the birds. And as we were talking at our small group on Wednesday morning, I was literally sitting outside looking at the bird feeder and just watching all the birds. And I was so distracted knowing I was going to be preaching on this on Sunday. So I really enjoy watching birds. It's something where I'm a little bit weird, I guess. Um, I'm sure some of you also like watching birds. So, okay, Tony is at least with me. I don't know if that reassures me, Tony, that I'm just the weird one because we're both weird people. Okay, you get picked on a little bit here, but I promise it's in love. When we watch birds, it's really fun because they live life uninhibited. They're just going around, jumping from place to place, eating a worm here, a worm there, searching for for some seeds. And it's just this beautiful picture of living a life that truly trusts in God. Because it's all grace for them. And this is precisely Jesus' point. He tells us that birds don't plant seed. They don't harvest a crop and then frantically store away their harvest for birdie retirement. That's not what birds do. They simply depend upon God. They depend upon His common grace. Each day they seek their daily worm. They seek what God would give to him, and they're sustained by the ecosystem that God created for them. Their life is purely grace. Day in, day out, they're sustained by grace. And as they live out their lives as birds, the crow doesn't wish it were a blue jay, and the blue jay doesn't wish it were an eagle. They're content in who they are. They're living unto God's glory. And I think here's the part that gets really good as we look at what Jesus is showing us. After Jesus shows us the analogy of the birds, he drops this incredible truth on us. Are you not much more valuable than they? Are you not much more valuable than they? See, when God looks at you, he sees someone that's created in his image. Someone who's made for his glory. Someone who was worth dying for. We can't believe the lies that the world would tell us, that others would tell us. We're not worthless. We're not less than others. Don't believe those lies. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you were in your mother's womb, God knew you. You are valuable and so loved by God. So loved that he was willing to give his life for. He's a God of forgiveness and grace and kindness and mercy. And knowing this is the secret to the transformed life. It's the secret to living the life that God would intend for us. God radically loves you. He radically loves you. And I know some of us here may be saying, well, that may be true for you, but I've made some mistakes. To that, I would say, we all have, friend. 
Every single one of us sitting here has made some mistakes, but God shows His love by forgiving us. He shows His great love by pouring out mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. Maybe that sounds too good to be true, and you're thinking, there's no way that God could forgive what I've done. It's a lie. There's no sin that is too far, too bad for God's mercy and His grace. God's love is beyond our comparison. It's beyond what we can think or imagine. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. He literally took our place, dying the death that we deserve, and through His resurrection gives us the offer of eternal life. The blessed hope that one day we will be resurrected just like he was. And we can trust in this salvation. We can rest in this salvation if we will trust in Christ. If we will come to him. We'll say, I don't want to live life on my own. I don't want to do it according to my way or any way I've been told. I want to, I want to live life according to the way of Jesus. And he meets us in that place. He pours out his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace upon us and invites us into a new life where we're redeemed and we're made whole, where we're called children of God. And the beauty of trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation is that every other worry in life is minimalized. I'm not saying that it goes away, but it is minimalized. Because when we trust in Jesus, we then also know that one day all things will be made right. That a new creation is coming, a day where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more suffering, no more hurt. Where we'll see our Savior face to face. And with such a future hope, everything changes. But we're still here now. So we need some more encouragement to live this life according to Jesus. And Jesus knows that and gives us yet more examples. Let's look at verses 28 through 32. He says, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus is continuing to reinforce how God is mindful of us, how he cares for us, how he loves us, telling us that we don't have to worry about all these things in this life. What's really interesting to me about this example of flowers that I didn't realize is that flowers were actually used for fuel in first century Israel. They were used to power the easy-bake oven, not really an easy-bake oven, but the bread ovens of the time. And so what Jesus is saying is that these flowers that are beautiful, they're just fuel for the fire. And yet they're lovely, and they're beautiful, and they're fun to look at. 
We have a God who, who uses even things that are thrown into the fire to make bread as part of his glory. And what he's doing here by comparing the flowers to Solomon's splendor, by saying that the flowers exceed even the splendor of Solomon, he's telling us that the things of this world are fleeting, that they don't matter, that what he has created far surpasses anything that we can create for ourselves by trying to do it on our own. It all fades away at the end. John, did you ever see a U-Haul behind one of the hearses? Not yet. You still, you still waiting for it? Okay. I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't think any of us have seen it. If John hasn't seen it, then none of us are ever going to see it in our lives. We don't get to take the things with us in this world. So why live for them? Why worry about them? Why spend all of our time on those things if at the end of the day they perish and don't matter? Wealth, power, success, everything else that we're supposed to value are all temporary. It's silly for us to spend so much time dwelling on them. Instead, we must grasp a hold to the things of Jesus, to the life that he would invite us to grab hold of. I want to share a little about this life by reading Philippians 4, 4 through 13. This is a verse that we all know well at verse 13, but I want to put it into context to help us really see the life that Paul would have us live. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you, renew, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. To catch all of that. We can rejoice in all things, in everything that we face, knowing that the peace of God is always with us. No matter what we face, no matter what circumstances we come up against, we can always rejoice knowing that the peace of God sustains us. There will be times that we will be lacking in our lives. There are also likely times where we'll have plenty and we'll have an abundance. In either of those situations, we're called to trust in Christ and not ourselves. He is the one who sustains us. 
We don't have to live lives of worry. We can rest in Jesus. We can know that in every situation that we can pray to God with hearts of thanksgiving and he will meet us there. That we don't have to carry everything on our shoulders. This is what the good life is, to be able to say, as Paul says, no matter what I face, no matter what I go through, in every circumstance, I'm sustained by Jesus Christ alone, and therefore, I can face this. Not in my own strength, but because I know I trust in Jesus, whatever situation I face, eh. So what? He is the one who sustains us. As I read through this account that Paul gives us, this is the type of peace that I want in my life, don't you? I want this type of peace, and thankfully it's not reserved for a select few. It's for everyone. Everyone who would trust in Jesus. Let me wrap up by looking at Matthew 6, 33-34. Jesus finishes this section by saying, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. The only way that we're able to respond as Paul did in Philippians 4 or as Stephen did in Acts 7 is if we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We're able to respond well as we seek God more and more. This is simple, but it has the compounding effect of transforming our lives because moment by moment, Hour by hour, day by day, as we renew our minds, Christ transforms us. Transforms us into the life that he would have us to live. And I think us sitting here, we can often think too little of the gospel. We can think that the gospel of Jesus is enough to forgive us of our sins, but not enough to truly transform our lives. This is a thought that is so contrary to the message of Scripture, so contrary to what the early church believed. We must have a mindset that Jesus wants to transform us wholly. He doesn't want to just transform a little bit of us. He wants to transform us from the inside out. He wants us to, to live the good life that he would have for us. Listen to this from Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There is a different kind of life available. A life where we forsake the ways of the world, where we forsake the ways of ourselves and live according to the way of Jesus. He desires for us to become like him, to do what he did through the empowerment of the Spirit. As we live our lives as neighbors and parents and children and employees and every other title you want to affix to who we are. He wants us to live as he did. 
Verse 34 of Matthew 6 is Jesus' invitation for you to live life which is truly life. A life where you live one day at a time. Not worrying about what could be or what might happen. If that's going to be there or that's going to be there. Am I going to have enough money in the bank? What's going to happen in the world? It's a different type of life. A life where you seek that day to love God wholeheartedly. Where you seek that day to love our neighbors like Jesus would. So I want to conclude by giving us just a couple of practical things to do this week. Number one, I want you to take an inventory of what is at the forefront of your mind. Identify the things that you're constantly thinking about. What are the things that you're worrying about? Is it relationships? Is it money? Is it your job? Is it your your kids? What is constantly at the forefront of your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? This reveals to us where our treasure is. Reveals to us who we are in our innermost being. Once we've identified these things that we're dwelling on, now comes the hard part. Identifying it is the easy part. The hard part is surrendering them to God. Surrendering the things that we're worrying about. And this will be costly. Because surrendering isn't just praying a prayer. Oftentimes, surrendering requires us to physically do something. It may mean giving money away or deleting social media or choosing to downsize or or something else. I don't know what it's going to be for you. Seek God. Tell him you want to surrender these things and seek his will for how you should respond. The only way to be transformed is to surrender. We can't hold on to the status quo and seek the way of Jesus at the same time. And this brings me to the last thing that I want you to do. Identify those things that are at the forefront of your mind. Surrender them to Jesus and then fill the void with Jesus. Whenever you surrender something, you need to fill the resulting void with Jesus so that something else doesn't take its place. Things are always going to come into our mind. But as we pursue Jesus more and more and more, the other things fade away more and more and more. One last thing. And this one's important. But listen to me. You're not the exception to the rule. You're not that special. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that will say, it's okay, you can keep that. It's okay, you're stronger than the average person. You can, you can keep that thing and you can treasure it and you can just put it in your pocket. It'll be okay. The enemy loves to tell us that we're the ones that are special, that we can handle it in ways that other people can't. Trust Jesus. Surrender everything else. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Set your, th- your eyes on things above, not things below. Please stand as we pray. Now we ask for you to give us a vision of life that is truly life. And we want to know the life that you would have us to live. 
Help us to not live for ourselves or, or for the world or for, for anything else. Help us to surrender to you today, oh God. And we don't want to live lives of worry and comparison and anxiety. We want to live lives of trust and hope and joy. God, we ask for you to teach us your ways. Help us to grab hold of your ways. Lead us into all truth, Lord. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.